Listening to the English language news of Khan, the Israeli Public Broadcasting Corporation. After the war cabinet last night approved their participation, optimism was expressed in professional and government echelon about the possibility of a breakthrough at the talks. Also participating in the summit are CIA Director William Burns, Qatari Prime Minister Al Thani, and Egyptian Intelligence Chief Abbas Kamel. A Western Diplomat told AP last night that both sides want a pause and are now willing to make concessions. An Egyptian official who is also well informed said that the mediators had succeeded in lowering some of the Hamas and Israel's demands. Hamas has demanded that during the initial 45-day interim truce, discussions take place on a mechanism for transferring residents from the southern Gaza Strip to the northern Gaza Strip. The ratio between the Palestinian prisoners to be released per hostage reportedly remains the key sticking point. The hostages' families held a big Sabbath welcome this evening that resembled what the hostages are going through. Everyone in Tel Aviv's hostage square received a quarter of a pita with a little bit of cheese and a napkin. Many of the large bakeries in Israel today handed out quarters of a pita to highlight the lack of food given to the hostages. A large rally is planned for Saturday with the slogan, There is no right or left. Choose the hostages. Speaking during a visit to Argentina today, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken criticized the decision by Israel to build some 3,000 new homes in West Bank settlements. We've seen the reports. I have, I have to say we're disappointed in the announcement. This only weakens and doesn't strengthen Israel's security, he said. It's been long-standing U.S. policy under Republicans and Democratic administrations alike that new settlements are counterproductive to reaching an enduring peace. They're also inconsistent with international law. Our administration maintains a firm opposition to settlement expansion, Blinken said. His comments came in response to the announcement by Finance Minister Betzel Smotrich advancing the construction of more than 2,000 housing units in Malia Domin and hundreds of new homes in the settlements of Kedar and Efrat in the Epsion block in response to Thursday's terrorist attack on the Malia Adumim Jerusalem road. Within two weeks, the committee that approves such construction will be convened. Smotrich said this was a fitting Zion future deep in enemy territory. We will reach wherever Hamas terrorists are. We will be in Rafah, Gantz said. U.S. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin spoke last night with Defense Minister Gallant and discussed the IDF operation in Khan Yunis and the need to present a credible plan to protect the civilians before an Israeli offensive in Rafah. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu presented his proposal for the day after Hamas in Gaza to the Security Cabinet for approval yesterday evening. In the immediate term, the IDF will continue to prosecute the war until its objectives are reached. In the medium term, Israel will maintain operational freedom 
in the Gaza Strip. This is unlimited in time, and there will be complete demilitarization of Gaza. Israel will impose what was termed a southern closure on the Gaza-Egypt border. Civilian administration and responsibility for public order will be based as much as possible on local figures with administrative experience who have no affiliation with countries or organizations that support terrorism. The document also states that Israel utterly rejects international dictates on the matter of the permanent status arrangement with the Palestinians. The Prime Minister's Bureau issued the statement that issued a statement that the document has been distributed to the Security Cabinet members as a platform for ongoing discussions. The Palestinian Authority said the plan aimed to perpetuate Israeli occupation in Palestinian territories and prevent the establishment of a Palestinian state. Nabil Abu Radina, spokesperson for Palestinian President Abbas, stated... Gaza will be part of an independent Palestinian state, with East Jerusalem as its capital, and any other plan is doomed to fail. Using aircraft that was that were operated remotely, security forces killed a terrorist from Islamic Jihad in Jenin last night. The terrorist was on his way to commit a terrorist attack. The Jerusalem District Police have arrested a resident of East Jerusalem, age 16, on suspicion of planning a terrorist attack. The teenager left a letter in which he said he intended to retaliate for the crimes in Gaza. He was arrested last night in Beit Hanina, and the letter was seized by police. That's the news. Now, some of the stories we broadcast this week. This is Mark Weiss wishing you Shabbat Shalom from Jerusalem. Stories we broadcast this week. Members of the extended Bibas family say they agreed to publication of the security camera footage recovered in the Gaza Strip showing Shiri Bibas and her two young children, Kfir and Ariel, on the day of their kidnapping by terrorists from their home on kibbutz near Oz in order to shake up the world and decision makers in Israel and to put the plight of their loved ones and all the hostages on the public agenda. In remarks to the media in an online briefing organized by the Hostages and Missing Families Forum headquarters, the family members voiced their anguish and frustration. First to speak is... Ofri Bibas Levy, sister of Father Yarden Bibas, who was kidnapped separately from his family. Then, Ifat Zaila, cousin of Shiri Bibas, followed by Elon Keshet, cousin of Yarden Bibas. We desperately call for and all decision makers in Israel and worldwide to be involved in negotiations and bring them on immediately. We ask to prioritize the return of these children, first and foremost, in any agreement bring this family back home. Those children are the only children left in Gaza. They were supposed to to be released in the uh, prior deal that was uh, taking place. We agreed to publish this video so the world could not forget, uh, cannot look away, uh, cannot in any way make this uh, a routine for 134 civilians being held captive in, in Gaza in the hands of a terror organization. We want to thank the public in Israel and worldwide to support us uh, all along the way uh, and to thank, to thank you, the international uh, press community, uh, for helping us echo our message uh, worldwide uh, for four months already. 
Uh, and I want to ask you to continue uh, to do so and to help us in our struggle and our fight to to bring them back home. It's really it's been hell of 24 hours for us and the last four months took its toll. Uh, telling our story over and over again and sometimes we feel even you know that there is a problem there is a problem that our children are are maybe less less important or less heard of and this video reminds us and the world and it's important to remember that they were taken from their bed you can see my cousin my youngest cousin we are only four I have a younger brother she has an older sister we are a very small family she's like a little sister to me and I see her there barefoot in that video surrounded by men and it's been really hard hearing that it's justified children are children we all all of us here were raised to believe in In the future, in the peace, and watching this, what happened to my cousin broke something in me. I believe in humanity, and watching that video, there's nothing humane about it. as if I said it, it broke something in us we 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 still can't believe that this is what we have to go through. This is what they have to go through to be. kept in dire conditions, and we know it from real um, accounts of people that have been kidnapped and were released. They are being kidnapped in such dire conditions. People get chemical burns on their skin due to li- lack of uh, hygiene. And we have babies there. How could it be? How could it be so long that they are still there? Through all these challenges that you've just listed, um, how do you or are you still holding on to hope that you will see your family again? And you've, you've mentioned the international community, um, you know, but, but what about the government? Are you, do you feel that the prime minister and the government are doing everything they can to bring them home? So we do have hope that they're alive because... There is a precedent. People have returned. But first, we don't want them to return with developmental damage and, uh, and more physical and psychological damage that has already been done to them. And, and, and again, we want to make sure that they are coming back alive. We must believe that they are alive and we must do everything we can to make them come back and If we don't and if people don't act in the urgency of this matter he and his uh, family from their home it was Hamas and Hamas are terrorists okay they are terrorists they are insane they killed babies in their crib so this these are the people responsible for their lives these are the people that are supposed to To release them and br- uh, bring them back to their family they are the sole people responsible for their lives whatever they try to say remember this is 
ISIS level and more crazy terrorists, okay? So they are, they are the, the point, they are the bottleneck for, for bringing them home. So, of course, we are demanding our government to, to do everything they can all the time. But we also need the help of the international community to not let, to not let Hamas just do what they, whatever they want. Members of the Bibas family in a plea to bring their loved ones home. Since the start of the war, more than 200 doctors and paramedics from abroad have come to Israel to volunteer with Magen David Adom. After undergoing an orientation through Magen David Adom's international unit to learn the rescue services protocols, the medical professionals join the Magen David Adom teams for shifts on ambulances and mobile intensive care units. Among those who volunteered with Magen David Adom is Dr. Mark Wilkenfeld. He came to Israel through the ILUS Doc Aid Initiative, which was established to provide assistance to the Israeli health system, including Magen David Adom, as it faces challenges due to the significant increase in casualties and a shortage of doctors, exacerbated by the deployment of medical professionals to the IDF reserves during the ongoing war. He spoke to reporter Nomi Segal about the experience. You know, the war broke out, and, and us in America, American Jews and, and American Jewish doctors, we felt like we really wanted to do something to help. Whatever it was that we could do, we wanted to do. And, you know, it started off by collecting supplies and by, by donating, but, but a lot of physicians really felt they wanted to get in there and help. And there's an organization that I work with, uh, you know, I've had the honor to become part of. It's called ILUSA, um, Docade. And, um, we've been filling requests from, from both Israeli hospitals and also setting up missions to Magadabra Dome. Now, now you probably know that Magadabra Dome suffered greatly during the atrocities of October 7th. They actually, you know, people that paramedics were killed. Um, I myself was in Starots and I saw the ambulance that was shot up with bullet holes in the shrapnel by the station. Um, so it was felt that it, it would be helpful in a number of ways um, for physicians to be able to go over and work alongside with the paramedics of Magadabra Dome and the ambulances. And when I say helpful, it's, it's actually very interesting because I, I found it was very helpful to me. And, you know, people kept saying thank you for coming, but I, but I found that it gave me a way to actually feel like I was doing something. And I think that for all the physicians, we feel that that being there and, and helping was more beneficial for us than it was for any of the paramedics. Um, so, so what happens is teams are recruited um, through our website, which I can give to you. And physicians volunteer. And we actually have philanthropy money. We have money through the Auschwitz Foundation and through Nefesh Benefesh and others that, that pay all the expenses. And the doctors commit for two weeks and they go over and they're, they're assigned to different ambulances um, throughout the country. And they go on calls. Um, so that serves a couple of purposes. Number one, it serves the purpose of the Magadavara Dome, um, the paramedics who are exceptionally brave. They know they're not alone. Right? So just, just by being there, by having a physician with you, um, you know you're not alone. Someone's come 6,000 miles to actually sit with you in, in the ambulance and go on calls with you. Um, number two, there's a physician there. And, you know, depending on the specialty, it can be very helpful, right? And also by a physician being there, there might be things that you're able to do for a patient that you wouldn't be able to do because the, the paramedics generally don't have physicians right along with them. Um, number three, many of the senior paramedics have been called up, right, to their combat units, and, and there's... um. 
you know, a lot of the junior paramedics really benefit from having physicians along. Okay, so we see that as, as the benefits um, for physicians going and also for Magadam But, you know, this, this is not something that's limited to October the 7th. I mean, the, the partnership that we're, that we're establishing will be long-term. And, you know, unfortunately, um, we don't know that this is the last time that, that medical aid will be needed. We always hope that it is. But in the future now, we have a, a group of physicians that are actually familiar with how Magandavaradom works, um, policies, procedures. Um, we know people, and, you know, if it's necessary, we can just go over and, and fit right into the system. So, so that's, um, the, that's the benefits, yeah. So essentially the physicians landed running. Um, did they need any kind of specified training to be brought up to right. protocols? Right. Yeah, that's an excellent question. And, and Moshe Schumann and his team and the, you know, the international team, they gave us an orientation. Um, medicine is medicine, but, you know, procedures and policies might be a bit different. Um, you need to know what the equipment is. And, uh, you know, also to get an idea of, of, of how things work. So you do hit the ground running. And, you know, people say, they said, you went to work at an ambulance in Israel. You know, how did you do that? Uh, I was very fortunate, by the way, because I spent a year at Rambam Hospital. We actually have my license, my medical license and my specialty boards. Um, physicians that are American that are not licensed yet, we work with the Ministry of Health to get them a temporary license. But you do, you do indeed hit the ground running. You get a, a several-hour orientation, and they say, okay, tomorrow's your first shift in the ambulance. And I'll tell you, I can tell you what I learned, which is um, fascinating. Sure. Yeah. I'm telling my colleagues and my friends. I didn't learn a lot of medicine, but, uh, but I learned something that I already knew, and I wish the entire world knew. You know, they say that Israel is an apartheid state, right? That, that's what we're told, an apartheid state. And what I learned, and I, I kind of knew this before, but I saw it with my own eyes. You get a call, you get a call to a Haredi section of Yerushalayim, right, to treat someone. And you get a call to East Jerusalem to treat someone. You treat the patients exactly the same way. There's no difference whatsoever. You know, I kind of wish the whole world knew about this because I saw it myself. I saw I saw everybody being treated the same way with the same compassion, and it's truly amazing. Um, I also spent a day down in Sirota. I wanted to go down and talk, you know, talk to the staff down there. Um, I do a lot of work with 9/11 responders. That's a lot of my practice in New York. And I saw the same look in the eyes um, of the responders in Sirot that I did um, after 9-11. Just the look of, you know, total, just so shook up by what they've seen. And, you know, they talk about it, but it's, it's truly um, it's truly horrific what they've been through. And they just don't stop working. One of the medics told me that, you know, he saw the pickup truck outside his window. He woke up, he saw a pickup truck with four terrorists and a machine gun. He thought they were they were filming a movie. He called dispatch and they said, "Stay home. Do not leave your house." So naturally, he ran to the Magadavadadom station because he wanted to help. You have an ambulance with bullet holes in it. You have, you have shrapnel on the station. It's um, you know, it's just it's beyond belief. And, and I really I really think that people need to see this. So it's not just treating trauma of patients, but also dealing with trauma of the. Caregivers themselves as they process what they're well, doing. Well, I think that again, you know, I, I'm, I'm fortunate or unfortunate to have a lot of experience with with responders after 9/11. Um, I think that you know they're, they're heroes, right? And I think that you know we, we don't. I wasn't formally doing treatment to them, obviously, but I just think I think that that having having these conversations and listening, right, and also them knowing it's you know for a doctor it comes six thousand miles, right? 
NBA point of view, it's like, wow, he's, they really want to be with us. They want to help us. So um, I think it's very, very, very valuable. And I think that, you know, I think doctors need to know that they have the opportunity to go. And uh, I, I wish that every physician could go and, and just see it and experience it. And, uh, you know, it's for me, it was life-changing. You know, just a, a beautiful, beautiful experience on, on so many levels. And, the, you know, like, like in all of Israel right now, everyone's so together, right? It's just you, you feel like you, you're part of it. And it's, it's um, I can't say enough great things about Magandam and Adom. I can't say enough great things about, you know, the, the medics and the other workers. And it's just, it was, um, I got so much more out of it than they did, believe me. Do you anticipate coming back for another round or are you also... Uh, yeah. <laughs> I just, I was just, um, I was WhatsApping with Yoav Golan, who does a lot of the organizing, and I, I said, I said it was amazing, and he said, I'm so glad, and I said, I can't wait to go back. I know, I know Yoav has been twice, um, so yeah, you know, they, they also say that, you know, when, like, when you're in Israel, because my family and I, we, we tend to go to Israel a lot, right? So they said, if you're here, and you just want to come do a shift, um, that's fine, but um, you know, it was just so beautiful. I had my family with me as well. And, you know, my kids, one day, they, they were so wonderful that one day they actually, you know, were driving by where we were staying and they wanted to bring the ambulance for the kids to see it. Um, so the kids came running over and we got a call, so we had to run off, we had to drive off with the sirens blaring. But it's just, um, it really feels like family. It's, um, it's, it's, such a, it's such a beautiful experience. And also, you know, in addition to that, these are very competent people. You know, I, I never once felt, that they're just so competent. I never felt that they... You know, they, they didn't know exactly what they were doing, you know, whether it was a child with an anaphylactic response or, um, you know, we had a cardiac arrest in the ambulance. I mean, th- these are real professionals. And, um, you know, we're just, we're so fortunate to have people like this in the system. So how does one who might be interested in volunteering in this program take part? Yeah, yeah. So uh, we have a website, um, ILUSA.aid, that people can look at, and it's... Um, yeah, I really I recommend any doctor you know who can do it. It's 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 a blessing, really. It'll it'll change it'll change the way um, that that you look at it. And again, it's not only medical. You know, just just seeing the country and seeing everyone working together, and and seeing every everyone treated in such a wonderful professional manner. You know, it's just um, it's incredible. I, I just don't know how to say enough nice things about it. And I think people need to go. The doctors need to go down to Starot and you know at, at least see what happened there. Because it's, you know, the, the atrocities and, the, and the, the barbarism of what happened is, um, mm. it's beyond belief. And the dedication of the staff, mm. right? And, you know, staying there weeks without sleeping, just staying at the station and, and making very difficult decisions. It's, um, mm. it's incredible. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm exceptionally proud to, to have been there. Um, it's just unbelievable. Dr. Mark Wilkenfeld. The website is ilusdocaid.org. Now, Ivri Lidar with Bo. Come. Mishakim shall 
of the Israel-Hamas war on October the 7th, Israelis have been volunteering in massive numbers to help the war effort in diverse ways. The spirit of volunteerism and community service is ingrained in Israeli society, not just in times of crisis. This spirit is highlighted with various volunteer activities and events 
that take place on Good Deeds Day, which will be marked on March the 19th. Reporter Nomi Segal heard more about Good Deeds Day, founded in 2007 by philanthropist Shari Arison. From Kanan Rabino, Vice President International Programs at the Ted Arison Family Foundation. Good Deeds Day is a day that we're celebrating doing good uh, once a year, but it's really for the whole year. It's to create awareness, it's to create energy, and to bring new people into the circles of doing good and volunteering. So this is a day that we started, we started 18 years ago. The initiative was of Sherry Arison. Uh, and today, who runs the program is an organization called Ruach Tova, Good Spirit. That is actually a national volunteer center that you can volunteer all the year. And when we thought about how do we want to expand volunteering and people that are doing good, so we created this day that it's good, good Deeds Day, a day that really signified the doing good. Spirit of giving of volunteerism in Israeli society. I think it's very high. I think also we saw it, uh, unfortunately, we saw it around the war. But always uh, the spirit of giving and uh, empathy is always high in the Israeli society. I think it's, it comes first from my heritage as a small community around the world and coming to Israel, not very big, a lot of challenging when we build this country. And I think without the spirit of, uh, of volunteering and doing good, I don't think we could achieve the, the things that we achieved in the country in the past 75 years. Certainly, as you pointed out, there has been an outpouring of volunteerism in Israel in these recent months, whether it's to support evacuees or Israel's soldiers or farmers who need agricultural workers. Tell us a little bit, will this be reflected in the events and activities that will be taking place this year? Definitely. So this year we will see a lot of activities with people that were displayed from their house with agriculture and a lot of solidarity, like a lot of things that we see like kids making because it's around pouring uh, care uh, gift baskets to if it's kids to elderly, if it's elderly for people that are staying in hotels now because they're evacuated. So it's all out of solidarity, but also hands-on activities to really help the people um, continue with their life. And I think what the spirit of volunteering and doing good that we saw, it's really how this, us as society, uh, in the end game, we choose in life. We choose to continue to a life. We choose to, to, pers- to, pers- to have prosperity in our life. And with all the very difficult things that we still have with the hostages and the war and our soldiers, we're still choosing in life. And I think this is the act of volunteering and doing good that we see, I think, in the most spectacular way in Israeli in Israeli society. You also noted that it's not just this special day, but volunteerism and activities throughout the year. So are some of those activities highlighted on this day? Sure. Uh, we see a lot of a, a, a groups or organizations that on this day just make, make a better activity or a, or, or a larger activity. Again, uh, Good Spirit Ruach Tova that stands behind 
this uh, uh, this day. It works all every day. If you go now on their on their website, the Ruach Tova, you will see volunteer activities now. And if you go on the on the site of Good Deeds Day, just write in Google Good Deeds Day, you will see activities that are happening in this day. And they're more special. They're probably more highlighted. And mostly for people that are not volunteering, they can come and have an experience for one day for a few hours. And I hope and I know they will continue to volunteer also after. So if one is interested in uh, promoting an initiative for volunteers to come, or if people are looking for a place to volunteer, where can they find that information? Yes, if it's during the year, so they can go to Ruach Tova, Good Spirit. Also, if you write volunteer in Israel, it will go <clears throat> for the first thing in Google, or you just write Good Deeds Day on Google, and you'll find all the activities that you have around the country. Uh, if I have one more second, just to say that this day also was exported to the world. Um, and today, Good Deeds Day, as you see it here in Israel, is also celebrated in 110 countries around the world. And I think uh, that's also a very significant thing that a day like this comes from Israel and also celebrated around the world. Kanan Rabino, Vice President International Programs at the TED Arison Family Foundation. In Britain, the Jewish community has experienced an explosion of hatred since the 7th of October. The annual survey of anti-Semitism has confirmed. The Community Security Trust said the 4,103 incidents in 2023 is the highest ever recorded, an increase of 147% of the previous year. As we hear in this report from our London correspondent Jerry Lewis, one of the most worrying statistics is the massive rise of incidents involving schools and universities. The Community Security Trust, the CST, has collected statistics about anti-Semitism since 1984. And in their annual survey covering 2023, they say that 4,103 incidents is the highest ever recorded. Inevitably, they added that two-thirds of the total occurred after the 7th of October. They noted that many of the further 2,185 incidents reported to them involved anti-Israel activity, but did not include language which could be deemed anti-Semitic. The 147% increase over the previous year's figures were unprecedented, from an average of seven incidents a day prior to the Hamas invasion of Israel from then to the end of the year, it worked out as an average of 50 incidents each day, which they described as a watershed in terms of anti-Semitism in the UK. Most worrying, said the CST, was the targeting of school pupils and university students. In the school sector, of the record 325 incidents, 229 took place after October the 7th, a 232% increase over 2022. And in university campuses, they saw a 203% increase to 182 incidents, 81% of which occurred after the start of the Gaza war. The CST added that the most frequent form of anti-Semitic rhetoric used throughout the year either referenced or was linked to Israel, Palestine, the Hamas terror attack or the subsequent war. 
It was present in 1,774, that's 43%, of the total cases reported to the CST, 85% of which came on or after the 7th of October. The CST was able to obtain ethnic descriptions of the perpetrators in nearly 1,300 of the incidents. During the year, 40% were spread to be white, 33% Arab or North African, and 14% South Asian and 12% black. However, sharp differences were recorded in the descriptions before and after October the 7th. Before, 56% were said to be white, but that fell to 32%, whilst the percentages for Arab and North Africans showed just 18% before the 7th of October, after which it shot up to 41%. Commenting on this year's record statistics, the CST's CEO, Mark Gardner, described the explosion in due hatred as an utter disgrace. While thanking the government and police for their support, he said the record statistics were a challenge for everyone and he condemned the stony silence from those sections of society that eagerly call out racism in every other case except when it comes to due hate. Meanwhile, Britain's Home Secretary James Cleverley said the rise in anti-Semitic hatred and abuse in recent months was utterly deplorable. They had taken strong steps to confront this head-on, increasing funding for proactive security at Jewish schools and places of worship, working with the police to ensure that hate crime and expressions of support for the terrorist organisation Hamas were met with the full force of the law and prescribing his foot to rear. After praising the CST, he said he would do everything in his power to ensure that the Jewish community are safe and just as importantly, feel safe. This is Jerry Lewis in London. Now, Amir Dadon with Livcho Nachon. Choose correctly. עניין של זוויות, אני לא מבין רמזים אולי, צבעים ואותיות. מבט חטוף אל עצמי ודי, רק לא להסתכל, מה שבפנים כבר בפנים מדי, קוראים לזה הרגל. מתי אלמד לבחור נכון, להאמין
percent of the Israeli population faced food insecurity before the outbreak of the war on October the 7th. Cuts in spending for food security programs as part of the budget cuts to cover the cost of the war further exacerbated the problem at the time when the government should be stepping up its support, according to Becky Cohen-Keshet from the Forum Against Poverty. She spoke to us about... ...hard to believe, but 30 percent of Israelis are in food insecurity. That means that people are not having meals because they can't afford to buy a meal, or it means they're not buying healthy food options. They're going to buy white bread and you know simple red jam or something to put on it because they can't affo- afford to pay for food and that like fruits and vegetables and legumes and whole wheat bread and whole wheat rice and all kinds of things that would be good for their health. And so we have a very severe problem in Israel. And and this is not something that's being said only by um, different organizations who might have an interest. Um, the Bituach Lomi, the state social agency, is the one who um, made this report, which is a very recent report. It was done before, just before the war, um, where they had had a survey and they found 30.9% of Israeli citizens are in food insecurity. So how do the recent developments affect those? Uh, certainly rising food prices can make the situation more acute, but we're also looking at budget cuts, which can reduce the kinds of supports that are provided. Absolutely. We would expect the government to be realizing this is a very severe issue, an issue which should be of major concern and have resources in the budget to deal with it. The previous budget, the one that was passed in May 2023, actually for the first time in a long time, gave a serious amount of money, gave a billion shekels to dealing with food insecurity. But now the government is talking about cutting 50% off of the sums they were given for food insecurity for the um, these food stamps and um, only giving 300 million instead of 600 million for 2024. And the, the during the war, people were helping each other and there was a lot of philanthropy. Um, and there were at the beginning of the war. Unfortunately, that's run out. 
people have run out of funds and energy and it's gone back to being the responsibility of the government, which it always was, but uh, <laughs> it should have been, to be more exact. Um, and we're very, very concerned because the budget cuts now are coming at a time when, as we said, 30% was before the war, and we think that things have gotten even worse for many populations. Um, under these circumstances, I feel the government should be taking much more responsibility um, having more programs, more money allocated to this. And actually what we see is a 50% cut. Um, now that program in particular, uh, mo- it is not uh, optimizing getting the food stamps, the food voucher support to the people most in need. Well, I totally think that the office that should be responsible for dealing with this issue is the welfare ministry. Um, and they do have their own program for food insecurity, which has been, it was originally a pilot program. Um, and then a few years ago, they said this is their official program. And it's a very good program, which other than giving people um, food stamps, it also um, gives fruits and vegetables and helps people um, individually get their rights and realize their rights that they can be getting from the government. And it comes as they say, with an, both an educational component and activating rights. But this program reaches 28,000 families. It was supposed to continue growing. It was supposed to be a program that yearly includes more and more families. And this year it was supposed to get to 52,000 families. And that program was also not budgeted to continue growing. And this whole program of the ministry is not in their base of the budget. I mean, it doesn't go from year to year automatically. Every year it's up for grabs. It's like people have to argue for it and fight for it. So that it's not that we are actually choosing at the moment between which are the best programs and deciding how we should do it. Our basic problem is that the government is not realizing this is a huge issue. This is an urgent issue. And we believe that what they need to do is they, the government has to take full responsibility for the problem and um, give it funds in different ways. Uh, if they finally decide that it should all be through the Ministry of Welfare, wonderful. But at this point in time, saying what we're going to do is just not fund things. We're going to both take 50% for the food stamps and not continue to expand the program that is in the welfare ministry. What we see is just that the problem is very severe and not being addressed. So we feel that first of all, they have to make a decision that they're addressing the issue. We definitely think we'd be very happy if they would continue funding the program that's in the ministry of welfare and expanding it as they should. Uh, and in addition, also be giving much bigger funds because the funds that were given to the food stamps, we're talking about a billion shekels over two years, as opposed to the Ministry of Welfare's, which we're talking about fighting for $100 million. So we're, we really need the government to put a lot of money into it. And then we feel that the second stage, they should be figuring out what's the best way to do it um, and how they can, in fact, help people both with food stamps and with realizing their rights and using education and um, saving food that can be saved. Um, There are many different components that definitely need to be part of working on a proper solution. We have to deal with supporting agriculture in Israel more. But all of these are components that have to be worked on. But if there's no money allocated to this, if we're having budget cuts that take away 50% of the sums allocated to this, then 
the, the, this whole discussion will be mute. They won't really matter. What's the best way? We're basically talking about people who are hungry not getting any kind of solution. Do you anticipate any kind of adjustments then being made moving forward, going forward? Uh, yes, actually, we're very, we're optimistic. I do believe that there are a lot of members of Knesset who are connected to what's going on on the ground, and they realize that this is not something that can be dealt with another year. Some things that we'd like to change can, and we'll have to probably wait for another budget, but people who are hungry just can't wait. And there are um, many members of Knesset who are actively working on improving this budget, and hopefully they won't cut, at least they won't have such a major cut of 50% on the food security. And we're hoping that also... In the Ministry of Welfare, we have heard the minister saying that he feels this is an important issue and that he will also work to expand his budget on this. And the more that people are involved in this issue, the more the politicians will hopefully change the situation. Becky cohen Keshet from the Forum Against Poverty. Thanks for joining us this week. This is Mark Rice wishing you Shabbat Shalom from Jerusalem.